Hello and welcome to the Talking Techniques podcast. Brought to you by Biotechniques, this show brings you the latest from the frontiers of the life sciences straight to the people exploring them. I'm your host, Biotechniques Digital Editor Tristan Free, and on this episode we'll discuss the techniques used to examine the neural circuits underlying vocal communication and how understanding these pathways can lead to a greater understanding of the interactive behaviours displayed by both humans and animals. To do this, I'm speaking with Michael Long, Principal Investigator of the Long Lab at NYU. Michael, it's wonderful to have you on the podcast. Great to be here. Thank you very much. But first, coming up, discover what songbirds can help us learn about human communication. Uh, But what I think is really amazing is like humans, they learn through vocal imitation. So they listen to a tutor, uh, typically their father, and they practice like crazy over the next months of their lives uh, to get their song just right. We explore the techniques used to investigate the neural pathways underlying human and animal communication. And, uh, and what we did was to then cool different parts of that brain and see how that changes speech. And in fact, if we cool one part of the brain, we see just like the songbird words stretch out and reveal the potential impacts that this research could have on disorders of speech and social interaction. So I think about this as as something that's potentially really profound, right? So if you imagine something like an autistic patient that that can't complete that loop, that has a stimulus and doesn't respond in in a fast and effective way, maybe some kind of way of artificially close that loop and to help them uh, re-engage with the world. So getting straight into the questions then, um, can you introduce yourself and tell us briefly about your lab's work investigating the neurocircuits that underlie vocal communication? Yes. So uh, my name is Michael Long. I'm at New York University. I've been here for about 14 years. Um, I'm a neuroscientist, so I started my life uh, thinking about how circuits are wired up. We mainly looked in, in rodent neocortex. Um, really concerned about how different neurons were talking to each other. Uh, but then I became really fascinated uh, with behavior. I think uh, behavior is really what our brain does. You know, without behavior, uh, we're a plant. You know? And so um, I looked around at different postdoc options and found a lab at MIT, Michael Fee, uh, who worked on the songbird. And I never dreamed in a million years that I would be thinking about uh, the songbird. But that really, that decision changed my life. And so what songbirds are interesting for, so we, we study the zebra finch, and zebra finch is kind of the lab rat of the songbird world, if you like. Um, they sing all year round, and so uh, they're not seasonal like some other birds. They sing um, even in laboratory settings. Uh, their song is a mating song, so a male sees a female and produces uh, the song. Uh, but what I think is really amazing is like humans, they learn through vocal imitation. So they listen to a tutor, uh, typically their father, it doesn't have to be their father, some other male, only the males sing of the species. And they practice like crazy over the next months of their lives uh, to get their song just right. And then once they've got their song, uh, they live another 10 years, they can pop up to a female, produce this song, the female will listen and say, oh, that's all very nice. Mating happens and the species goes on. And so how they learn that song is not only fundamental for how we do what we do, we, we learn uh, to speak, for example, through vocal imitation. Um, and many of the parallels are really intriguing. They babble and we babble when we're kind of infants, still learning um, all the way through a kind of awkward period and finally being able to speak with some uh, sense of authority. And uh, and there there you go. This is a, a behavior that not only is, is really tractable, um, it's something that 
uh, they train themselves uh, to do. Uh, but there's a series of brain regions that are there only for producing uh, or for learning that song. So just song-related brain regions. So there's a real possibility. The dream is within reach of finding out how groups of cells work together to create these wonderful behaviors. And and so to actually go in and have a look at that those brain regions and investigate how they're laying down those those lessons and teaching the animals to sort of imitate each other and, and learn that song. What kind of techniques are you using um, in your investigation of, of these sort of uh, animal brains? Well, what, what we do primarily is behavior. So, um, you know, what's, what's great about this is the sum total of all of the different muscles used to produce the song. To, to force air through the vocal organ, to make that vocal organ flex in a very specific way and make all of these notes happen with, with really kind of 10 millisecond precision. So this song is something um, that, that is really effortful and they become uh, a, a, a master musician, if you like, by the time they've practiced and gotten this just right. Um, you know, a real expert in this behavior. Um, so, so just listening, just a wave file is enough to really know the sum total of of all of the uh, the orchestration of these vocal muscles. Um, but what's great is one of the most interesting parts of the brain uh, that, that allows for this song to happen uh, is right near the surface of the brain. So we can actually gain access to this in a way that doesn't harm uh, the bird. They feel no, no pain. There's no pain sensors in the brain. Um, and we can do things uh, like, for example, we had a hypothesis that this was important kind of metronome for the song, if you like, pre provides timing for the song. So one simple thing we did many years ago uh, when I was still a postdoc is just put a small uh, heat pump device right over this part of the brain that could just lightly change the temperature of this presumed metronome structure. And so our hypothesis was if this really is keeping time and we lower the temperature by a few degrees, then time should be kept more slowly and the song should now stretch out. And that's exactly what we found. We have these birds singing in slow motion by just cooling down this part of the brain by a few degrees. Wow, that's that's amazing. Sorry, what's the thinking then between the drop in temperature and the, the slowing of the song? Is it li literally because the temperature is lower, the electrical signals are, are moving slower? That's right. It, it, so so there's a, a, a pattern that happens. So one, one discovery that... Um, kind of made it think, uh, made me think that that the songbird was really where it's at, is uh, came from the, the, the phyla just a, a few years before I joined it. And what they found is that individual cells within this brain region, it's called HVC, uh, called a metronome, if you will. Individual cells are active at just a single moment within the song, almost like a tick of a clock. Different cells are active at different moments. So you see this kind of sequence of behavior and we thought that if we could cool this down, now that sequence is going to propagate more slowly. And indeed, that, that is what happens. And as a result, the, the song should, should stretch out and we see it. So if we go down one degree, the song stretches out this much. And if we go down another degree, it stretches out a bit more um, and, and really can, can pull the song so it's about 50% longer than it, it used to be. Um, and, and so that that's I started my lab with that result in, in tow to say, how, how does this metronome work? Right. And and uh, and that's something that that has been a focus of my lab for uh, the, the past many years.
presumably there are some quite key differences in what you can do with your animal model studies and what you can do with your human investigations of, of human speech. Um, so how do your the techniques differ between your your animal model so animal model studies and your human studies? Well, in, in both cases, it's all about animal safety, and it's all about trying to preserve uh, the, uh, the function of the brain. And uh, you know, obviously, the best experiments leave no fingerprints, so we can actually understand how this network works, uh, but without any kind of deleterious effects. And so, one thing that we can do uh, in the songbird is replace uh, part of the skull with a, an optical window. Um, and and uh, after we we introduce a calcium indicator so we can actually see these cells active and see each one of those uh, ticks within this clock and visualize this entire circuit as the bird is singing under a, a two-photon microscope. So the bird, uh, with a little bit of training, can produce his song right there under our microscope, and we can visualize the entire network doing what it, it does during... Uh, during the song, and and we've gone and, and and looked at cell types and connections and 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 how this thing could could work, uh, worked with computational modelers, etc. But one thing I, I want to say before I get to the humans, um, you know, the, the the trait that's shared is vocal imitation. That's actually a really rare trait in the animal kingdom, and this is the the simplest species. And I think in this case. Uh, uh, simple uh, songbirds, perching songbirds, are, are the simplest set of species. Um, I think simplicity is is a major uh, benefit here, right? I mean, the human brain is so complex, and we don't have these kind of candy-colored areas where we can say this is really doing song, and these areas are are, are not uh, like we have in in the songbirds. So it gives us an idea to pull out general principles and understand other things. But one major difference is the following, right? So as I mentioned just in passing, only the males sing. And they sing really in this unidirectional way. The female can give cues that this song is working or I'm not interested, right? But but it's not this kind of back and forth uh, conversation. So one animal that we've become interested in over the last uh, few years is uh, a rodent, and certainly not a common rodent that that one would find in, in, in standard neuroscience labs or standard biology labs. Um, it's called Scatinimus teguino, or the singing mouse. And so this animal... Um, exists out in Costa Rica, um, and they actually sing back and forth. So there is a conversation there between these animals, um, and and uh, and it's audible. So you might have heard of ultrasonic vocalizations in, in mice. These animals produce this almost operatic series of notes. They typically get up on a log or they get up on the top of a rock, and they say, "This is this is me. I'm Larry." And they, each animal has their own song. And is it is it similar with the songbirds? They're trying to. It's a mating um, process, or is it? So, did... so we've, we built a little piece of Costa Rica in, in in the lab. So we created a terrarium with little hiding places and trying to uh, to make it as as similar to their own as possible. Um, and what we found out is it's actually for a quite different purpose, which is uh, territory. And so typically, if an animal is a dominant animal. And you can see that if there are two animals and one is clearly uh, owning the space, if you like, if there's any kind of interaction, one will be displaying dominant behaviors uh, to the other. The other will run and hide. And the one who wins will get up on the top of any peak that he can and and sing that. And also, importantly, the, the, the females sing as well. And so there's this back and forth uh, conversation. And I think that is something that 
that was really exciting to us. So, you know, speech is really for communication, for expressing abstract ideas, for allowing us to build buildings and bridges and write plays and, and all of these amazing things. Um, and, and so this is something that uh, to understand the interactive part of it, uh, we went to Singing Mouse. And so that that exact um, focus made us start to think about human brains as well, right? And so we started to, to look at the human literature and ask, you know, what kinds of recordings have been made during conversation? And the answer was really not much. And so we teamed up with uh, the University of Iowa. So Jeremy Greenlee has been an incredible um, partner over there. So he's a neurosurgeon. He has a lot to do there in many, many cases, uh, many responsibilities. Uh, we've worked together on this kind of common ground and really pushed towards understanding how conversation works in the human brain, right? And this is something that's really fundamental. About 15% of the population suffers from communication disorders, everything from autism to apraxia of speech to stroke-related uh, aphasias. And, uh, and we really haven't looked at the brain in motion. I mean, if, if the songbirds taught us anything, uh, it's really you want to see what the brain is doing while the animal is is uh, engaged in this kind of communication behavior. So let's let's study humans. So so then how to go on and study humans? Presumably, or, or, or maybe not, um, you can't be placing those kind of um, screens of windows into the brain that you would be on your, on your songbirds to then conduct that two-photon microscopy. So how would you... Um, investigating the brain and seeing it interact and light up as you're um, uh, as you're having people speak or talk to each other. What what is the the technique and the kind of um, experimental model that you're using for that? It's a, it's a great great question. So the first thing we did uh, was something kind of uh, very out outside the lines, and that that was uh, we had cooled down the songbird brain. Let's try focal cooling in the human brain. So why focal cooling? Well, focal cooling doesn't harm the brain. We're just taking it down by a few degrees. And in fact, um, it could really be uh, beneficial. So one thing that neurosurgeons need when they're going in to remove tumors or to treat uh, epileptic patients, um, they want to know that this part of the brain has to be addressed. But this part of the brain is deeply important for function. And, and we can't nick that part of the brain. Right? So we, we need that there's functional mapping and this happens. And typically... You know, since the days of Penfield, so this is in the 40s, um, even before, um, what what has been done is just small electrical current being administered to the surface of the cortex and awake patients. And so if you get to an area that's a language-critical site, typically you'd see something like speech arrest, where the person can't uh, speak temporarily while the, the current is being administered, and we know, hey, this is an area that we really shouldn't cut. Fine. Problem, of course, I mentioned that many of these patients are epileptic. If they're awake and we're administering current, uh, this could lead to a surgery right there on the table. No, I'm sorry, a seizure right on the table. And when that happens, uh, this can invalidate functional mapping. And this actually puts that patient in, in harm's way. So we thought, let's try cooling, right? Let's build something that is sterile, that can be handheld by the neurosurgeon, that can allow them to cool different parts of the brain safely. And in fact, we've done a retrospective study on, on the patients that uh, we use this technique for, and it was perfectly safe in all the, the patients that were enrolled, which were over 40 patients. And uh, and what we did, uh, you know, of course, this is in collaboration with, with Dr. Greenlee, was to then cool different parts of that brain and see how that changes 
speech. And in fact, if we quote one part of the brain, we see just like the songbird words stretch out in, in, in their morphology. It seems like they're speaking in, in slow motion. And in other parts of the brain, uh, you can see words, the quality falls apart. And so if I'm saying uh, the word shoe, it will become shoe or it will become grown. Right. So, so things kind of uh, and, and that seemed to be very regional, right? And so we learned something about the function of the brain and doing this kind of cool thing. But of course, what we what we really wanted to do is understand how things work in an interactive way. So how, how do we how do we do the equivalent of being able to use microscopy or some other technique to to, to throw our arms around the network? Um, so the first thing we did uh, was we, we we realized that we need speed. So conversation is something that happens very quickly. Right, so if you if you actually just look at two people chatting, the amount of dead time between speakers is enormously fast. So surprisingly fast, and people have have looked at this. So Stephen Levinson has had many papers on this topic. They call that a floor transfer offset, and that time is typically about the blink of an eye, about two hundred milliseconds. That 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 quiet period between speakers. So how does this actually work? And so that became something that we're very interested in. Um, how does human conversation work? How do you get this rapid fire back and forth? We needed a technique that was fast. So one technique that that is kind of the industry standard for speed is electrocorticography. So in that case, and this is typically during a neurosurgical procedure or during a kind of longer lasting uh, screening for epileptic seizures where a patient may spend uh, some days in the hospital and, and monitor to find out where the actual seizure is, is originating from. Uh, right, there's an array of electrodes directly on the brain to give a very high resolution view of what's going on in that part of the the cortex. It has the speed and it has the spatial precision to really say what these different cortical areas are doing com during conversation. So, in a paper uh, we published with our Iowa collaborators in Nature uh, in 2022, um, we 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 did just that. We found an area of the brain that seemed to be really active. When that, uh, where the person was kind of planning what they're going to say in this rapid fire back and forth, and uh, and this kind of planning hub we think is really critical for that back and forth uh, um, behavior, that conversational uh, rapid fire exchange. And so this is something that I think has been great. Now the question is, um, what's going on in the brain? So electric corticography may t tell us the roar of the crowd under each one of these metal electrodes uh, of maybe hundreds of thousands of, of neurons, but what's going on at the level of individual neurons? How, how does the circuit do uh, what it does? And that's what we're really working on. Fantastic. So you've got a challenge there, which is you can detect which regions are, um, are active during different bits, but the actual kind of like the pathways in the process um, of how things are happening um, is, is slightly more difficult. Is that something that is possible to overcome with technology? Are there techniques that you're exploring to see if you can um, look into these uh, these sites? It is, and and uh, and this is something that we've been working with diagnostic biochips uh, on, on a new array that they've uh, developed to do exactly this. So so we would love to know at the level of individual neurons how how the human brain does what it does. That's really the dream. You know, it's kind of what brought us into to neuroscience in the, in the first place, right? And uh, and so one 
challenge in that regard is typically um, if we take uh, electrodes which have been developed and, and we've used in our in our own animals, right? Um, something like silicon probes, where there's many hundreds of electrode contacts, and we can now record large populations of individual brain cells. Um, it's great, but these are pretty fragile. In the animal, we can do everything to make sure that that animal is safe, that these can be put in, and, and we can create a kind of scaffolding so that they don't move at all. This is something that is uh, we can't do in, 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 in a human patient volunteer if, if we're time-limited, and, and certainly... Our number one goal is to, to treat that patient and make sure that that tumor gets out, that they're treated for epilepsy. We're there for a short period of time, and we need to leave no trace. So how does this work? Um, so what we really want is something that is optimally safe and effective at recording the activity of individual brain cells, and ideally many individually resolved brain cells. And so there is an option on the market now, and that is the human neuropixels option. Uh, and that's uh, many electrodes on a, on a wafer that can be lowered into the brain. Uh, people have used this to, I think, amazing effect. Uh, people like Sig Cash at Harvard or Annie Chang at UCSF, uh, two people whose work I, I deeply admire. Uh, but there are limitations with that as well. This is um, also something that could in theory, break in, in the brain. Um, so if it's a part of the human brain that's going to be taken out anyway, that's fine. But if we're very interested in understanding how the cortex works, we want to make sure that that person doesn't suffer any kind of, of even even remote chance of, of the uh, fragile recording device um, breaking. It's uh, interesting you bring up the neuropixels. It's in our, um, one of our, our, our first podcast of last year we were speaking to the inventor um and and he um one of his his uh points that he had was that when he looks at neuropixels and how they're used because they can collect such huge um amounts of data at the same time was whether the averaging of that huge amounts of data from the individual different cells was actually a beneficial thing or if it kind of helped average over what might be some quite interesting individual results amongst those individual neurons. So where do you kind of land on that spectrum of considering it as trying to precisely measure, take individual things from individual neurons, or to create large data sets from those uh, those different neurons? It's a really great question, and it's one where I, I think it's a luxurious standpoint to, to, to have, to have all that information and then ponder, you know, how do we parse this large data set? You know, are we looking at um, each pixel of the Mona Lisa, and really we need to take a step back and see that image, right? Uh, is it, or or is there some other kind of gestalt that we can pull out from, from looking at so many of these? It's a big data issue, and it's something where I, I think the field is really grappling with that as people are, are recording more and more and more neurons, and it seems to be going up almost exponentially. We've been heavily reliant upon uh, computational modelers, people to help uh, with statistics, and we've teamed up with fantastic uh, teams. Uh, Liam Penensky is, is a guy who's at Columbia, who is a real uh, world-class statistician and has helped us parse the data as well because things are so big that we need a team to really understand it. Um, I should say the the, uh, the different approach that we've taken, just to kind of uh, quickly close the loop on the safety issue, is 
Um, and, and the reason, uh, and, and it seems like a small point, but it's one that I think is important. Um, the difference between the diagnostic biochips uh, solution and the neuropixel solution. So the di diagnostic biochips is something that we've been working on. We call this the bee stinger. Um, and uh, the bee stinger kind of comes into the brain uh, before deep brain stimulation electrodes go in. So they're going down a path that other devices are going to be inserted to help that person uh, regain full function. You know, this is typically somebody with essential tremor or Parkinson's disease. Um, of course, the, the probe that's going to be stimulating their brain is much, much larger than our tiny, um, you know, something that, that, that's barely uh, thicker than a human hair comes into the brain, does its recordings, is removed, and then the whole apparatus goes in um, as, as prescribed by the doctor to help regain movement function of that patient. What I love about that device is it has a ton of channels. We can get a ton of neurons. They're really stable, um, but it can't break. So it's on a piece of metal that at, at, at worst will bend, right? And, and perhaps flex, which I think is actually a good thing. You can imagine a shock absorber, right? If there's any movement of the brain, and there's plenty of movement of the brain, or any movement of the patient, it's absorbed by this kind of wispy, bendable electrode. So this goes, enters into the brain, allows us to perform our recordings in a way that moves with the brain and allows us in a completely safe environment to record these data. And we've done it successfully now in five patients. And then, uh, and then yes, and then we can use about, well, is it the Mona Lisa, is it a pixel, and, you know, but, but I think what I, what I'm really excited about is being able to put behavior first, being able to put the patient first and safety first, and really think about recording from ensembles of the brain. While people are talking, chatting, you know, they can they can do all of this, um, listen, interact, talk about their day, and we hear the spiking of neurons popping away um, as we're recording this activity. It's something that really is the dream. And so instead of just, you know, a mouse sitting in my lab saying, hey, this is my rock, you know, we can really say, um, so where are you from? You know, and, and be able to see all of the processes that, that happen as we're sharing ideas and, and, and talking to uh, to another person. So you're just at the beginning of your research at the moment, so there's no hard results to discuss yet. But if there was one thing that you could ask for, um, be it a tool or a technology or an insight into the brain and the neural pathways that are involved in, in speech and um, communication, um, and that could be a, a sort of a fantasy if I was a genie who could grant you a wish. Um, what, what is it that you would you would wish for? Well, I think if there were a safe and easy way of having, uh, of tracking activity um, for a year, okay. you know, and, and that would be fantastic to actually see how these cells are active as a person is just going throughout their day. You know, everything that they, they interact with. And I think... Um, in, in neuroscience, in all of, 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 of science, there's always a tension between a kind of uh, rigorous, regimented, experimental protocol and just flexible, free behavior. And, and what I've learned is that you can learn from both. But what I think, uh, what my dream experiment is, is to really follow neurons around um, as a person does what they do and really see in, in, in a kind of natural setting all of the computations that are performed, I think that is going to tell us an enormous amount. And and I'm not someone who needs everything to be so absolutely controlled. This is going to be such a, a fertile 
place to generate hypotheses that then can be tracked down and much more kind of restricted, much more kind of uh, regimented tasks. But I think for now, I just want to see what's going on. What is the natural history of a human neuron as a person does everything they do throughout their day? No, I suppose that's a very good point. It must be a, a, a slight sort of confounding essence of um, these kind of studies is that you're you're working with someone who is undergoing surgery for a quite not not uncomfortable in terms of pain, but quite an intense situation for them, I suppose. They also have a pre-existing condition because they're they're having surgery. Um, so it's it's perhaps one of the most abnormal situations that a human can be in for you to Absolutely. be studying. So it must be a real challenge to to work with that and sort of work with that confound in, in your uh, in your study. So, so I'll say I'll say two quick things about that. Um so so you're right. This is probably the scariest day of their lives. Right. And and they're they're going under the, the knife, they're they're being uh they're awake for part of this. There's a hole in their skull. Right. How how abnormal is that, right? Um Typically, I'm sitting next to the anesthesiologist. We're looking at that person, um, person's face, right, and and talking to them. Um, what is true is this is the best part of of that procedure. They get to talk to another person, right? They they feel a normal connection, right? I'm I'm either holding their hand or the uh, anesthesiologist is holding their hand, and they're laughing and they're talking back and forth. And we've measured statistically how quickly they responded, and it's indistinguishable. From normal controls, right? So they can still chat during this time. They're quite awake, right? And um, I think because we work with two different populations that are, are really profoundly different. On one, one hand, we have uh, epileptic patients. And on the other hand, we have people having tumors removed. And we've directly compared the results from these two populations. We find identical, um, identical results. So um, it's not because of, you know, any kind of underlying pathology. Right. Or if it is, it's it's shared on these two very different types of pathologies, which I think if we're bringing out Occam's razor is, is going to be an unlikely scenario, I would say. Um, well, I suppose it's it's quite a nice, nice note and indicator to the um, the power of human interaction and conversation in terms of, of settling people and calming them and grounding them and how, how just how powerful those interactions are. I mean, think about the natural experiment of going through COVID, right? And, and uh you know, I would love to be in London sitting with you and chatting with you. Right? I can see you and it's great. Um, but but I think there's something that is absolutely a requirement about these kinds of back and forth interactions. Right. And and how devastating it is when they're affected. And like I said, this is about 15 percent of our population that are profoundly affected in this case. So so how can we figure it out so that we have some fighting chance of coming up with therapeutics here? And, and I, I want to say one thing that uh, I'll leave you with, which is a mystery that came from our last paper, but I think it's a mystery that hopefully can lead to something interesting. So we uh, we saw an area in the brain uh, that we think is important for for kind of planning for this back and forth conversation with Shuich. One way that we can test this in, in those patients is to use the time-honored tradition I've told you about. It's not a perfect uh, method, but to, to stimulate uh, the brain and, and, and to kind of temporarily disrupt the processing that's going on in that cortical region. And if we do that, if we stimulate this and kind of temporarily disrupt the area that's in this, this kind of interactive hub that we uh, we, we think we found, um, people make mistakes. So they try and grab, reach for a word and they, they, they have the wrong word. 
Um, they they take big delays between speakers because it takes them a while to actually plan and, and get this uh, done. But in doing the stimulation, we found something quite cool. And that is if we go into the, the kind of interactive hub and, and we uh, perturb that, it causes these, these clear deficits. There are other places, more ventral, where we stimulate and the person answers faster and they don't make mistakes. So I think about this as, as something that's really potentially really profound, right? So, so if you imagine something like an autistic patient that that can't complete that loop, that has a stimulus and doesn't respond in a in a fast and effective way, maybe some kind of way of of changing that other part of this more ventral portion of the brain could be something to artificially in a kind of brain stimulation method. To, to, to close that loop and to help them uh, re-engage with the world. I think that's something that is wow, that's huge. Really exciting. Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, and to, to think that there is a physical solution, and I, so often with these kind of conditions, everyone's so prone to thinking outside of the body and there's all yeah. these other things. But to think of that very clear physical solution to that problem that that's that's a well, well it's mind-blowing it's, it's very I, I i think it, it, it was some one of those happy accidents that came out you know we had 55 stimulation sites the ones that we thought might cause a problem didn't uh this is a temporarily problem and, and this is only when the stimulation is being administered but then others seem to make them better and i thought that was really exciting so um, something that can understand and potentially leverage in the future to help out people, I have uh, two nephews that are that are autistic, and I would love to do something to help them out. Well, that that's fantastic, Michael. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's it's been really interesting to hear about, firstly those those animal model studies and the different ways that they're they're interacting and the the depth that you can uh, investigate into, but then also how you're dealing with these uh, sort of like complex situations in which you're investigating the human um, scenarios um, and how your techniques are adapted to to leave no trace and, and, and are developed to, to make sure they're safe but also giving you that really fantastic and deeply insightful information so so thank you so much for coming on the podcast and, and sharing your work with us Justin this was so fun thank you so much I really appreciate it if you've enjoyed this episode and would like to find more like it you can check out the podcast section of our website on www.biotinics.com or follow at Tristan on Twitter for regular updates and threads on our latest episodes. Thank you for listening and goodbye.